into a bonus episode of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Generally speaking, this is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing a listener to other bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. However, as you're well aware at this point, the problem with Fish fans is they get myopic. They only pay attention to their favorite band and nothing else that can tell you exactly where they played on November 22nd, 1997, and you talk about other bands, and look at you like you have two heads. We are here to combat that. Absolutely. And here we are in a bonus episode. You guys have probably heard a bit about this leading up to it. We are starting off counting down our 10 favorite albums of each year of this decade. Starting here tonight in 2010. And we're going to march all the way up to 2019 before we do our annual year-end episode. And we're also going to do an episode uh, showcasing the best albums of the decade. So this is kind of the start of that. We're very excited about it. And um, we're just going to jump right on in. So Dave, let's talk a little bit about 2010. I know it was a long, long time ago. Uh, I think you were just newly married. Neither one of us were dads. Our lives no. were in very different places. <laughs> what was uh, what were you like as a listener? What was music like for you at that point in time? Well, back when I was much younger, um, let's see, 2010, I was trying to start a solo law practice. I've been married for I got married in 2000, October 2009. I really can't remember much of my life before I had a child in 2014. To be perfectly honest. But I remember <laughs> in 2010, I was more carefree. I would do things like volunteer at like beer festivals in the greater Boston area. And let's see, I think in 2010, I may have been the first year I used Spotify. It may have been 2011. I'm not entirely sure. But I don't think I listen to music much differently than I do now. I mean, most of the bands on my list are still viable today. Yeah, you know... It is tough to remember life before having a kid. I had one in the fall of 2015 and uh, I'm dad brain, new dad brain is still taking over my life. Um, what I remember from 2010, I was, I started the year I was in Korea. I was teaching English in South Korea, came back to the U S went on a 14 show fish run and saw a lot of very mediocre shows. And um mm. One very, very good show uh, at Alpine Valley and a couple shows with some highlights here and there. Um, I started a music blog. That was the first time I really said, okay, I'm listening to all this type of music. I need to figure out a way to push this out into the world in some productive manner. That was called The Suffering Jukebox, named after my favorite Silver Jews song. And I ended the year, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we moved to Portland, Oregon. 
and we lived there for a couple of years and I saw a ton of live music while biking to and from venues in the pouring rain year round. Yeah, in 2010, I was writing for a music blog called Coke Machine Glow. It still exists. It went defunct in 2015, but we still have um, the URL, so you can go there. And I don't think you can search by my name. I probably wrote over like 150 reviews for that site. If you want, I think the best thing I wrote was a pretty sarcastic review of the second Fleet Foxes album. So (laughs) if you want a really snarky take on Fleet Foxes that – kind of makes fun of them while enjoying them at the same time. Coke Machine Glow, Helplessness Blues. Yeah. It'll be funny when we get to 2011 then. (laughs) Um, Yeah, right. That came out in 2011, but I was writing a lot in 2010. Right, right, right. No, but but that's that's on my list in 2011. Um, It's not on mine. (laughs) It is is interesting, though, looking back. I mean, 2010 was a year... um, living in South Korea, having access to incredibly fast internet. Um, it was the first time I was really downloading music en masse and just like getting 10, 20 new albums a day through a uh, great old site, Mega Upload, uh, mm. founded by Kim.com. Um, seen jail. And uh, I, th- I believe so. If not, he's, he's, on the he's run. poorer than Billy McFarland. Right. Um <laughs> But a lot of bands uh, that I started listening to then, um, it's it's interesting to go through this top 10 that I made because they reflect a lot of where my interest went throughout the, re- throughout the uh, rest of the decade. So why don't we jump into this here, Dave? What's your number 10 for 2010? Number 10, the band is called Working for a Nuclear Free City. The album was called Jojo Burger Tempest. I can honestly say I've never heard of this band or this album. What, what was it that was remarkable for you? Um, okay. Working for a Nuclear Free City was um, a band from Manchester, England that kind of did a lot of... It was a new millennial update on 90s Manchester music. So lots of great dance gurus, lots of cool instrumentals, but also some really good Stone Roses pop, um, some laptop jockey stuff some psychedelia all over the place lovingly all over the place um that album it's two discs and the first disc is the record and the second disc is just one long form bunch of samples inspired by hip-hop mixtapes and there were um i think they put out one more record and they broke up but they're in various different projects one of the guys has a lot of soundtrack work but they were almost more like a collective of really good producers as opposed to an actual band. That album and the previous compilation, Businessmen and Ghosts, are very much anybody who enjoys listening to this podcast would enjoy immensely. Yeah, that sounds like an album that I would not have uh, gotten into until we started recording this podcast and you were able to break down Manchester music for me. So I'm going to have to go and check that out. Uh, My number 10 is an album by a band that somehow finds their way into my top 10 always in my 10 or 9 slot every year every time they put out a record this decade and that is beach house teen dream um this was like the first big beach house record there was a ton of hype that went into it i still listen to it on a regular basis i think it's probably their best record although i really liked seven from this past year um yeah, probably definitely yeah yeah it's just it's 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 the 
culmination of their sound in in the most simple straightforward way the songs are excellent zebra norway silver soul um uh walk in the park i mean the the first four or five songs in the album are just one after another perfect um and then the back half just eases out really well what's the song 100 mile stereo is that what it's called yes okay it sounds incredible so what do you got for number nine Gorillas, Plastic Beach. This Gor- is a great album. Yeah, this is the one great Gorillas album that stands on its own. The others have some decent singles, but are kind of the other albums really make you long for Blur. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> this album, it holds together on its own. He's got a lot of guests, but the guests are used to good effect. Snoop Dogg has never sounded as cool as he sounds in the title track of this album. And it's really, it made me really excited that the Gorillaz Project could be taken in some great places. And since Plastic Beach, it's just been kind of like a bunch of uneventful dance singles that Damon Auburn put together in like GarageBand. But this was, um, yeah, this album's really great. Yeah, I have a distinct memory of this coming out. I think it was like April of that year. And I put it on one night. It was like one of those first nights you could open the windows in the springtime. Mm-hmm. And it's very atmospheric. It has some ambient moments. And uh, yeah, it's very cohesive in, in terms of, you know, for a Gorillaz record. I, I remember listening to this a ton during that spring. And then it kind of faded away for me as the year went along. But I, I remember really liking it. Yeah, this album definitely earns the moniker far better than it has any right to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, my number nine is a record by a band named Sate, and the album is called Dream Get Together. Uh, we actually featured this in episode 10 uh, when we were talking about the Chicago 2017 Simple, because the album opens up with one of my favorite rock riffs of the 2010s and closes with a cover of galaxy 500's tugboat that's done really really well Mm. um this record came out in early 2010 this was one of my big anticipated records of the year uh because i loved their previous record which i'm blanking on the title of right now but um i loved that album it was very psychedelic guitar driven spirally kind of drone rock this came out was a bit of a more of a pop shift for them they, they tried to write like more songs rather than just song based ideas um, I definitely didn't like it as much at first and it grew on me as the year went along and kind of found its place here and, and unfortunately the band hasn't really done anything for the rest of the decade which is a little sad because they definitely had some promise some of the members ended up in the band Sunny and the Sunsets which I quite liked some of their stuff that they've done over the last few years and um I'm always encouraged when they come out with a record, but uh, this was definitely, I think you can tie back my foray into progressive rock to this album and liking this record a lot. They had Tim Green in the band though, right? Was he the producer? They had Tim Green in the band. Okay, yeah, yeah, from the fucking champs. He's done a lot of really good production work, so... He's, um, yeah, they kind of have always, they, I've kind of realized that they're one of those bands that, um, uh, they're almost like a side project for producers and for bands in, in larger groups, like to kind of do a soundscape and do do a type of sound that 
they wouldn't be able to do anywhere else. Um, I know a buddy of mine saw them in San Francisco where they're based out of in early 2011 and said that there were like 15 people at a show. So I think that's <laughs> a little bit telling at this point. So I've got for my number eight, the band Hot Chip, One Life Stand. Hot Chip, of course, being the British dance band um, whose guitarist is also Moonlight's in LCD sound system being um oh goodness now I can't recall his name well it's unimportant I mean Hot Chip is fronted by the twin frontman of Alexis Taylor and Joe Goddard Joe Goddard being the big bass voice hairy guy Alexis Taylor being the more diminutive nerdy guy so they traffic in um very new order inspired house music catchy pop songs very loving and i hated their previous record made in the dark did not like that record at all the one before it the warning was uh one of my favorite albums of the year that it came out which i want to say 2007 or 6 not positive but yeah to me one life stand was a total comeback record because i, I loved it quite a bit songs were more long form than Made in the Dark the hooks were brighter the uh, songs even more lovey-dovey than usual oh the guitarist's name is Al Doyle that's right, the reason I recall that is I believe in 2010 I uh, saw Hot Chip play a show in Central Park Summer Stage and one of the front men, Joe Goddard was not there, in fact they pre-recorded all of his bass parts and he sings vocals in one song that kind of had it fake beamed in from a television. And the only reason I found out about this is because I actually wrote a review of the concert in Coke Machine Glow and complained about it. And the guitarist found out and he put a big comment apologizing, saying, our Joe Goddard, he couldn't make it because his wife was having a kid, but we tried re-recording all of his bass parts. We understand there was a big hole in the set and we felt bad. Now I felt like a schmuck for complaining. However, One Life Stand from Hot Ship, very good record. I still listen to to this day. So my number eight is a band that I discovered far too late. Uh, this was the record that really uh, introduced me to them and started a now decade-long obsession. Uh, I wish so badly that I had found them in college because they would have been perfect for how I felt emotionally in college. Uh, and that is mm. The Walkman Lisbon. Um, I think that this is something of a derided album within their overall catalog. I know that you go back further with them than I do. Are, are you a fan of this record? Uh, yeah, it's good. It's not as good as the one that preceded it, but it's good. It's kind of... Lisbon wasn't so much derided, but coming after you and me, I mean, it wasn't so much a step forward, it was kind of like a lateral. Yeah, but I get that sense. Anything after you and me is going to be derided just because you and me is such a fucking mega incredible record right i definitely loved um in in listening to the band in hindsight there feels like there's like a little bit of a turn here towards heaven and towards the conclusion of the band um i i I loved this record in 2010 it spoke to me throughout the entire latter half of the year uh especially as we moved into portland oregon and realized in a in a recessed economy, I guess you could, you could say, nearly depressed, 
uh, finding employment uh, in a new city was was quite a challenge. And I took a lot of odd jobs and a lot of really horrible jobs for a couple of months before I finally got my feet on the ground and felt settled. And um, every time I turn this record on and Hamilton Lethauser kind of that like whine that comes out of him in the early part of the, the record, um, and just like the way his, his voice produces words in such like a long, strained way, just like felt like how I felt every time I took a deep breath and submitted another job application. Um, this album also, I got engaged in the fall of 2010. And um, this was like the only music that ever made me want to go through a divorce. Mm. <laughs> There's something about the Walkman that just sounds like some weird satisfaction at the end of a crappy bar drinking whiskey when like your life has fallen apart but everything's gonna well, I would be okay say the record before this one you and me which is my favorite album of 2008 was definitely a classic late night cry into your whiskey and stare at the heavens whereas lisbon is a little more small a little more optimistic not quite as drawn out in that sense this is the one that's got um what was the singles angela star city Angela Surf City. It's got um, Victory. Stranded is a really great song on here. Um, it, it definitely sounds like a band that spent some time in Portugal uh, and has a little bit of like a renewed later in life travel view of the, of the world. Um, but I don't know. This this started up a huge obsession I had with the Walkman. I absolutely love this. Um, what do you got for Seven? Seven, I've got Janelle Monet, the Arch Android. That was her first album. Might be, I don't know if it's her best album. It still is my favorite album from Janelle Monet. This was um, the one, her first single, Tightrope, with Big Boy. You hear that and you said, oh shit. This is, uh, she's not <laughs> fucking around. It's got Cold War, which is still like an incredible use of like uh, Outcast Bombs Were Baghdad style, like drum and bass, uh, I mean, drum and bass beat. Mushrooms and Roses. This is like awesome psychedelic guitar squall. And it's funny. And like, I remember in the liner notes for each song, she was like inspired by X. Like, she was like Mushrooms and Roses, inspired by like stage diving at like, like a Jack White show or something, something wacky like that. But uh, yeah, that album really kind of introduced Janelle Monet as someone to watch. And she only put out three albums from uh, 2010 to present but they're all fucking great you know the one that came out in 2013 Electric Lady was awesome and of course 2018 which uh, just concluded as we're recording this her uh, most recent album Dirty Computer is fantastic so she knew what she was doing back in 2010 she did she was uh, like ready made for stardom it felt like yeah very she came fully formed, as they say. Yes. So my number seven is kind of taken on a different angle. This was a, a return of sorts. Uh, this was Broken Social Scene's Forgiveness Rock Record. Uh, I think this was their first album in five years at the time. And I think that there was a period in time between 05 and 2010 where it seemed like they may never make a record again. Um, I've soured a little bit on this record in years. I, I think... Um, <laughs> Broken Social Scene, at their best, they were like the biggest sounding um, and one of the more uh, 
That's the word I'm looking for. They're, they're, they were one of the more accessible, but also they, they, they operated in this really unique medium of sound that listening to them when you were getting into 2000s indie rock, they could just get you into like 10 different styles and 10 different bands at once. Um, this record I don't listen to nearly as much anymore, but I listened to a ton in 2010, which is why it's on this list. It uh, was right up there with one of my more anticipated records of the year, and it definitely lived up to expectations in the moment. Um, and maybe I need to revisit it. I don't know. It's probably my least favorite Broken Soul record. It's, it's, it's kind of how I feel. It's good, but it's the one I listen to the least. They're, the yeah. most recent one that came out in 2018, the name of which escapes me, is fantastic. That was Hug of Thunder. Yeah, Hug of yeah Thunder. that's a great record. It was a total comeback. Yeah. Did they put? And I think that was was that their first since this? I think it might have been. Which seems kind of weird that they would go eight years without putting out an album, and yet I'm trying to right. think of one that came out in between, and I can. So yeah, I think. Yeah, I can't. They went eight years before putting out Hug of Thunder. Yeah, I mean it's hard to. Like you forgotten in people was such a seminal record. I was given that my first week of my freshman year of college, and I still listen to that record at least five to six times a year. You know, I mean, it, it, like if if I'm, it's one of those records. If I don't know what to listen to, it, it goes on. Um, this record I definitely loved in the moment. I don't know if um, I don't think it held up, but but that happens. Um, that's part of the reason <laughs> that we're doing this is to look back at where we were in the moment. Um, what do you got for six? I've got the Budos Band, Budos Band 3 being their third album. Budos Band being um, an Afro-funk instrumental collective on Daptone Records. Kind of, um, I know members of the Budos Band have played with uh, with Sharon Jones's band. They played with Lee Fields, Charles Bradley. Rest in peace, Charles Bradley and Sharon Jones. So, yeah, just... Um, Awesome instrumental band making fantastic, like 70s derived, almost like black exploitation soundtrack sound of music. The best Budos band songs you're in like a high speed car chase, being tilted from the cops, turning corners in the movie in your head. I know um, all those guys have day jobs. I know some of them are teachers, some of them are lawyers. I think my buddy he found out that the Budos band is like trumpet player both of their kids are in like the same kindergarten class or something like that but they're actually they're getting together to play uh, at the time of recording I think they're actually getting together to play some shows in Brooklyn in April I'm looking forward to that hopefully they have a new record coming out so number six for me is uh, Mark McGuire Living With Yourself um, if 2010 if 2009 2010 really signified anything for me from a musical standpoint this was the birth of my absolute obsession with ambient music that um, lasted a very high peak through probably 2013 and um, there's always at least one ambient record that tends to show up in my top 20s um, I was obsessed with the band Emeralds throughout the first half and into summer 2010 um, and yeah you were <laughs> and I um, uh I certainly, it was weird. I was seeing a lot of fish shows that summer and I was hearing hints of the band play in this very ambient droney style that would start to perk up uh, one summer later with the storage jam would start to perk up, you know, in later parts of 3.0. But at the time I was like, man, I just wish that fish could 
jam like this again like it was 1999 2000 i think that that was the big draw for me with this music initially but this record is um probably the most autobiographical record mark mcguire's made um it's definitely there, there's like snap snippets of um there's snippets of recordings from when he was a kid uh kind of interspersed within there that you know hold up and kind of your mileage may vary in terms of how you feel that those hold up but the guitar work on it is really sentimental it's really beautiful it's probably the prettiest record he's made and um i've st I still listen to it on a fairly regular basis now so i have for my number five foals total life forever foals are a british alt-rock band very math rocky the guitars kind of refract like lasers and glass very rhythmic and the singer kind of uh bears a significant resemblance to um, Robert Smith of The Cure. And they kind of, if you had to describe Foles, sort of like a more rhythmic version of like Stadium Cure. Think like uh, Wish, Air, like Friday, I'm in Love, from the edge of the, uh, edge of the Deep Green Sea style, like Cure. So Foles are actually interesting in that um, this is their second album. The first album, which came out, I think, two years prior to this was very dance punky not that impressive but their second album in 2010 got much more expansive they learned to write better songs uh the singer Giannis Philippakis I think that's how his name is pronounced he really figured out how to sing and it was just a really wonderful lush math rocky album you know since then they put out uh, the album Holy Fire and then What Went Down and then they took a little bit of a break and they have i think two albums coming out in this march i think well the first one comes out in march and it's called everything that is not saved will be lost parts one and then part two comes out later they're a little bit pretentious but i think they're kind of in on the joke and they're um they're on warner brothers so it's kind of a success story in that they were very uh unique sounding british modern rock band that's progressively gotten bigger and they're on a major label and i'm uh, excited to see where they go next all right so my number five is gil scott heron's a new here this was i believe the last record gil scott heron made before he passed away and um he passed away sometime early this decade and uh, this was, I think, his first record in 18 years after he'd been in prison on Rikers Island for some, um, for, for some time. Um, this is just a really fascinating mix-up of uh, soul music, folk music, hip-hop. Um, it really just tells the story of this old aging musician returning back to the scene and trying to figure his way out in the world again it's very lonely it's very isolated and i think it came out in early 2010 it was definitely the winter um i don't know how many of you have been to uh east asia during the winter but it's like the coldest place i've ever been in my entire life um like every day is negative 10 12 degrees uh with just like insane winds blaring up and down every street um, and this was the kind of record that just kept, uh, it, it fit the weather and it kept me warm and, uh, just stuck around for the entirety of 2010. And I just, I loved it. I was blown away by it. Did you listen to this at all? Um, I didn't. Wasn't it like remixed by Jamie XX? 
It was, yeah. That uh, remix came out in 2011. Called, I think uh, I, I think we're new. We're, yeah, we're new here. I think I listened to that one. Actually. Okay. Yeah, no. This is one of those records I'm told is very good. It kind of passed me by. Not. That I think it, you, sh- you would like it. It's uh, it's it, it's now. I think at the time I was like, huh, this is a really short record. It's it's only like. It's definitely under forty minutes. Good. It's it's right in our our time frame now. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for four? My number four, I've got Robin Body Talk, and really that probably, I would nowadays maybe even put that up to number one or number two just because I still listen to it so goddamn much. So, Robin's Body Talk is just wall to wall bangers. It was the compilation of, I believe, um, two EPs. There was like the Body Talk, there was the first EP, a second EP, then instead of a third EP, the Body Talk album kind of was a combination of the first two EPs plus some extra tracks. So, actually, Robin, the album after this, she didn't put out a record until 2018, being the album Honey, which is very good. While Honey kind of feels like an album, Body Talk was more... um, wall-to-wall banger singles and there's basically two people in this world those who love robin understand that she's incredible and great and those that don't and i have no time for those who don't you don't (laughs) if you don't like hatred of robin i almost equate with you wearing like a make america great again hat because that's probably what you (laughs) what you would have to wear to dislike robin just this unbelievable fucking pop star phenomenon every goddamn song is good you would want to have to support Donald Trump to not like Robin so yeah if you get anything from this podcast today is uh, go listen to Robin right now I think I saw her at Radio City Music Hall in 2011 she was phenomenal and I'm seeing her at Madison Square Garden next month I'm incredibly psyched for that show that's awesome um, what was the big single on that Dancing on My Own yeah that was Dancing on My Own it's interesting um, the version of Dancing on My Own that came out on the EP is slightly better than the one that came out on Body Talk because Body Talk version adds like an extra keyboard loop that just doesn't need to be there and it's yeah. in actuality it isn't a huge deal but once you get so used to hearing the first version you're like why'd they add that they had no reason to add that but yeah dancing on my own is the big i know lena dunham dances to it in like um the finale of one of the episodes of the show girls and that's one of the yes. most empowering dance floor anthems of like the past 10 years so yeah yeah i was gonna say that that came out because this album came out, I want to say, like, May or June of 2010. Uh, yeah. It was definitely, like, well, well positioned for the summer. I saw her at Pitchfork uh, Music Festival that summer, and she was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Uh, she just completely took over. Like, if you, even if you were waiting for another band at one of the other shows, you were locked into her. Um, everybody was, was completely zoned in on it. But that song was, like, up there with songs off of... Contra, Vampire Weekend, um, uh, songs off of a later album that we're going to talk about here that like were just on an ongoing playlist in every road trip that I took from one fish show to another that summer. And uh, 
I just get like ooey gooey happiness, like nostalgia whenever I hear that song. That song is definitely one of those songs you see her play it live and you could say, I think I've seen God to send down the stage. <laughs> Shout out to um, Friend of the Pond, Kathleen Hinkle yes. in the Lakeside, the the uh, the Mike Side Dyke Side Twitter account. I know they were going to have a huge Robin dance party at Curveball. Unfortunately, it did not happen, but I would have loved to have been there. So we'll do it some other time, Kathleen. So my number four is a record that has only grown in stature. I think it would be my number two of 2010 if I could redo the list, and there's a chance it might end up at my number four of the decade. I just I think this album is a complete masterpiece. It's only grown with time, and that is Deer Hunter's Halcyon Digest. Um, I listened to it again. It was one of my first records I threw on when I set up my record player here in my new house. Um, I think it's the best thing that the band has ever done. It's steeped in nostalgia, but like the whole theme of the record is this idea that the way that we remember things are always distorted compared to what they actually were like. And it's like memory that we have just is a complete disservice to us. Nostalgia is a complete disservice to us. And um, it's dark, but it's got songs like Revival on it, songs like Helicopters, songs like He Would Have Laughed, Desire, Desire Lines. Ah, jinx. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that deserves a jinx. Um, it's so diverse. There's not a weak side of the record. There's not really a weak track. It, it, it really showcases, like for the band to jump from uh, Cryptograms to Microcastle Weird Era to this in just three years is an astounding, astounding thing. Yeah, that album, if I could do it all over again, should be in my top 10. This top 10 is actually taken from... Um, Back in 2010, the site I talked about earlier, Coat Machine Glow, we had uh, some urines stuff. So I kind of just basically took this list verbatim from what we had for the urines. This is where my head was actually at in 2010. But if I could do it all over again, Halcyon Digers would uh, definitely crack the top five. That's how good that record is. Yeah, and the song uh, Coronado is one I would also add to the list. It's just like... It's almost like a Motown deer hunter. Uh, it's, it's their spin on, on Motown. It's so groovy. It's so funky. Oh my God, man. I love it so much. I, I could clearly talk about this record for um, for a very long time. We used the song Revival in uh, episode eight on the Reading Down Disease. It's one of those songs that um, I'm just so happy I could run through a wall every time I hear that song. So... Uh, <laughs> What do you got at number three here, Dave? So my number three to me is interesting because I feel it's kind of been a bit lost to history, despite being a big deal back in 2010. And that's the first official solo record from Big Boy from Outkast, Sir Lucius Leftfoot or the son of Chico Dusty. This album is really just a fine collection of excellent Dirty South rap songs from 2010. I mean, it's got the song Shine Blockers with Gucci Mane, which is a, it was a huge banger when it came out. Um, it's got the song Shutterbug, which was a Scott Storch production, which was a bit of a comeback of sorts for Scott Storch, as he was kind of uh, quite disgraced at the time. It's funny, off the top of my head, 
I'm trying to think of individual songs on the album and sort of coming up empty. But I remember this record, when me and my wife had to go to a, a wedding in the Florida Keys, I believe it was in October. It was about one year after we got married and we had a rental car. All they had was a CD player. We didn't have any CDs. So we went to a Target and ended up buying this on CD. And I think the other thing we got was a CD called Wake Up, which was um, a collaboration between John Legend and The Roots. That album's not particularly good. So this big boy record just didn't leave our CD player the entire time. And it's really good when you're driving through Miami, Florida, down to the Keys. It's just a really joyous hip hop album. And yet I think it was completely eclipsed by the hip hop record that's gonna be number one, which I'm gonna talk about a little bit, which I think is part of the reason people have forgotten about it is that while it was very, very good and very catchy and very well done, it wasn't exactly game changing, I think. So I don't really hear people talk about it anymore. Like Big Boy, I think he's put out two other solo records since. You know, people kind of treat Big Boy like an old horse that's being put out to pasture. As in, you know, he's good, he's reliable at a festival, but this is kind of all part of his like retirement plan at this point. Yeah, this was definitely a big, I remember this being a hugely hyped record in 2010, and I remember it living up to the hype, and I, I totally agree, it's, it's fallen off a little bit in terms of just like the, the chatter around it. But I saw him at Pitchfork as well, festival that summer, he was, he was fantastic. He was so playful, just like, fucking commanded the stage, just such a, but it says a lot in the recent Super Bowl halftime show with the one song he decided to do it was an outcast song right was, um, <laughs> the way you move with Sleepy Brown which although I realized that was on um, the speaker box part of speaker box love below but I still think of it as an outcast song totally. so my number three is I think that uh, big hip-hop album that eclipsed this in yeah you'd be and right that is uh, kanye west my beautiful dark twisted fantasy which um man uh i don't really know what to say about this record i think it's uh a perfect uh hip-hop album i think it's a perfect kanye west album um i really miss the days when he could say such arrogant things across a record and I smiled and laughed and agreed with him. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I loved this Kanye. I loved how big he was. I loved how much it matched like the fuck you attitude of LeBron James, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh meeting up with the or, uh, team up in Miami for the heat. I loved that it came out in mid to late November, 2010. And when it came out, it felt like, the biggest record of the year and like it had been with us the entire year perhaps that's because of all the singles he was putting out over the summer but uh man this record just kicks so much ass and uh for like a good three months this was my i need to go out and run like five miles hard this is the album that's starting me out and, and dark fantasy always got me out of the door i love this album but i'm going to talk about it shortly so yes <laughs> my number two is from one of my favorite bands, and then one of Brian's favorite bands, The National, High Violet. Um, it's just another great national album. It's not my favorite national album, but it's certainly good enough to be my second favorite album of 2010. 
This one took a little bit longer to sink in than the others just because I think it has the fussiest production job of a national record, which is to say it sounds fussed over. It sounds like they had 85 different takes of Lemon World, which according to that New York Times Magazine article that they did, it's still... What can you say about a record that's got, you know, terrible love in England and sorrow in Lemon World and Afraid of Everyone? It's just every song is good. There's absolutely no filler. It's just another quality effort by one of the greatest bands of the past 15 years. So I'm going to keep my mouth sealed on this one. and I'm going to jump into my number two, <laughs> which is uh, Arcade Fire, The Suburbs not only the last great arcade fire record that was made but um i think it's up there just below funeral as uh, the best record that was made um, i think this was a huge statement for the band uh, i think that they it was the first time where it felt like because i remember when they when the album title came out the first single came out i was like what the fuck are these guys trying to do what are they trying to say and um the first single wasn't that great. It was the title track. Right. I don't love the title track. Right, right. It gets a lot better as the album goes on. Um, songs like We Used to Wait, um, Mountains Beyond Mountains, um, Scrawl 2. Um, but this record said a lot to me at the time, and I think it capitalized on what Arcade Fire had been growing towards. And in hindsight, it really feels like a moment achieved and a moment realized for the band before they completely shifted gears and kind of fucked everything up for them and for their fans. <laughs> I just yeah. I love this record. It came out when I was living I was I was I spent like the summer just crashing at my parents' house before moving out west and uh, living in the suburbs at like twenty four, just kind of like out of a suitcase while I transitioned my life. This just hit home in a huge, huge way and reminded me kind of of everything my parents had talked about when they spoke about like Bruce Springsteen when they were growing up when they were that age. Yeah, The Suburbs is a great album. Uh, it was definitely in my top 20 that year. It's certainly, there's, I mean, it's, I think it's their second best album. If you wanted to argue to me that you thought The Suburbs is better than Funeral, I wouldn't agree, but I wouldn't think you were crazy. Uh, it, it can be argued. There was kind of, there's a few seeds in there suggesting that they would completely fucking lose the plot on their next album. <laughs> like, uh, Rococo, Rococo, Rococo. Yeah. <laughs> but, and yeah. Well, it's funny because Sprawl 2, I think, is the best song on the record, and I think yeah. it's one of their five best songs they've ever written. But, like, that completely, uh, shows the direction of where they've gone to over the last eight years and it's a direction I've hated so much yeah it does but Sprawl 2 is great because mm -hmm. Regine sings it and it's incredibly catchy and it kind of sounds like Blondie's Heart of Glass and it's the best isn't that like the second to yeah. last song it's or is it kind of song. like there's, the there's last song after that. yeah okay yeah, that's right that's right I thought it was at the outro remember they played that song on SNL and then like Regina Wynn Butler, husband and wife, they give you sort of like a big smooch at the end of the song at SNL. My wife turns to me and is like, you know what you do? Like, <laughs> like, I'm like, fuck you, Arcade Fire. That song, but, um, <laughs> that song, I, I was, uh, I went down to Deer Creek that year for fish and I was doing a Deer Creek Alpine run. I think it was, 
think it was the last time they did the Deer Creek Alpine Run. I could be wrong, but um, I remember my brother and I were staying up while my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, and a couple of friends were asleep in the back of the car. And we, we left Noblesville, and we had like a four-and-a-half-hour drive to Chicago. And my brother and I were both felt like we were going to fall asleep, and we were switching on and off like every 20 miles driving. And we played this song probably 20 times in a row just to keep us awake. <laughs> and somehow it didn't wake up anyone in the back of the car, but like we were blasting it like through the middle of the night. And it was like the only song that we were like, okay, we can keep driving because of this. <laughs> oh, Arcade Fire. What happened? <laughs> so what is your uh, number one album of, the, of 2010? We might have telegraphed it a bit. Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. That album's so good, and it just makes yeah. me so sad. It's it's sequenced the way it's sequenced, the beats, the verses. I mean, essentially, Nicki Minaj's verse and Monster is still probably like the single best verse of her career, and it kind of made her career. I mean, she yeah. that was the basically what put her on the map. Um, the first song asked, "Can we get much higher?" And as far as I'm concerned, Kanye never got any higher than that. That's his peak album. It's just wall-to-wall, pure enjoyment. Um, I remember in 2010, I was working at, I volunteered at a beer festival with some buddies up in Massachusetts. And at the conclusion of one of the evenings of the beer festival, we went back to the guy's house, went in the basement, and just turned this album up extremely loud and had like a Kanye dance party. We were just like, drunk and slamming into each other for like 45 minutes it was awesome but yeah this was I don't think he married Kim Kardashian yet this was kind of the last gasp of the old Kanye although I know you have a soft spot uh, for Yeezus which I still don't care for but even that album can be defended but this to me um, MBDTF is his best album it's his peak album you could maybe argue late registration is better again i disagree but it could be argued but this was by far my favorite album of uh, 2010 so my number one is an album that dave talked about uh this is the album that turned me on to this band and uh, they are one of my probably four or five favorite bands making music right now and that is the national high violet um i still remember logging on to pt one morning and um someone had a thread open of uh, the national high violet npr for first listen and i always kind of i never really cared for the national before i heard this i was quite skeptical going into it but i was like i should probably hear this record and um, I didn't care that much for Boxer when it came out. They had a single on um, uh, the Dark Woods of the Night compilation that I didn't care that much about. And uh, I threw it on just to kind of hear it. And that like first second of the when High Violet or when, um, when Terrible Love starts up is one of my favorite album openers and favorite moments of the uh, 2010s in terms of opening the record. I've seen them twice now, and it's amazing how seven, eight years later, these songs still dominate their live sets. I think that they're some of the best collection of songs they've ever played. Um, 
in hindsight, it, it is interesting, like now having a fuller picture of the band and hearing like a record like Sleep Well Beast from last year. I definitely get what you're talking about when you say that this has been fussed over. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that following Boxer, they made this record and they spent so much time making this record. I think there was probably a lot of pressure on the band at the time. But um, man, oh man, I still go back to this record. It's still very highly ranked in my top albums of the decade. The album cover is still one of my favorites of the decade. And uh, uh, yeah, I just, I, I love The National, I love High Violet. Afraid of the house, stay the night with the sinners. Afraid of the house, cause they're desperate to entertain. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Had to do it. <laughs> So, uh, that is our top 10 list for the 2010s. We hope you guys enjoyed this bonus episode. This was fun, huh? Kind of dipping back eight years or nine years in our lives. I enjoyed it. Also, I recorded this episode while drinking a Trogues Nugget Nectar, which was much, much, much better beer back in 2010. I don't know what happened. Around 2012, something turned. Still pretty good. Not as good as it was in 2010 and 2011. Anyway, thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Beyond the Pond. Come back. We will hold hands. We will sing Kumbaya. We will keep you from getting too myopic. And we will go beyond the pond. Osiris.